0: Uh, This is Mark Kermode. I'm thrilled to be joined by William Freakin, writer and director of Cruising. Um, Billy, let's begin. At the beginning of the film, when I first saw it, there was a disclaimer that's no longer on there, and you described it in a particular (laughs) way. How did you describe the disclaimer?
1: Uh, As an ass-covering measure that covered no ass. (laughs) There was a disclaimer that originally said something along the lines of, this film is not meant to... Comment or embarrass any particular group of people? <laughs> well, of course it isn't. <laughs> you know, what would you say that it was designed to uh, embarrass uh, millions yeah. of people? So it was the legal department at United Artists that put it in, and now that I got control of the film. At this point, yeah. I just took it off as being meaningless.
0: Yeah. Now, uh, obviously, cruising has... Uh, there's a novel in the background, but there's also a series of news reports. Tell me where the story for cruising came from.
1: Well, the scene you're looking at uh, of a hand floating in the yeah. East River in New York Something is really now. how it began. A series of body parts turned up in the East River, many of them in body bags. Yeah. Uh, that were marked New York University Medical Center Neuropsychiatrical, Neuropsychological Division. Right. And that's where I shot the exorcist, in an actual neuropsychological uh, operating room. Uh, and the young man who was an assistant to the surgeon turned out to be the serial killer.
0: Yeah, so during the scene in The Exorcist when Reagan is examined, we see an orderly sort of like moving the the, the, the gurney around and holding he it. He was
1: basically a male nurse yeah. assistant to the neurosurgeon. And four or five years after The Exorcist, I saw his picture on the front page of a newspaper in New York being charged with eight murders. And so I saw the name of his lawyer, and I looked it up and called the lawyer and asked if I might see this fellow, whose name was Paul Bateson. Mm -hmm. And word came back that he would see me. And I asked him if he had committed any of the murders. And he said he remembered doing the first one, but he didn't remember the others. But he said the police offered him a deal, which was if he confessed to all eight of the body bag parts that were found, they would reduce his sentence. And I said, well, why would they do that? And he said, so they could get the headlines. Eight uh, cuppy murders, they were called, solved. Cuppy meant circumstances unknown pending a police investigation. And that's uh, how they were labeled in the morgue.
0: This um, scene at the very beginning, we, we we meet these two cops. You once explained to me that there was a longer version of the scene involving a yes. liar's poker sequence. Can you explain what that well, was? Well,
1: almost every incident in the film happened. Yeah. is a story that happened to various cops who patrolled this area. They were known as the Pussy Posse. And uh, they were... This area was on the west side of New York, on 12th Street and Little West 12th Street. Okay. And the cops there uh, would ride around and make arrests at will. And they were about to arrest these two guys who are in drag yeah. in this scene. But they did it constantly. They harassed the Members of the private clubs and the other bars yeah. who went down for gay activities. They weren't being protected by the police, they were being harassed by the police. Yeah. And I had a friend who was a detective named Randy Jurgensen. Who I've also met, he's a great guy. And he's retired now, but his character. Uh, is the one that the Al Pacino character in this film is based on. Mm-hmm. He was sent into the S&M world, which is quite distinct from the gay world. It's qu- quite distinct from the gay lifestyle. Uh, it was a world unto itself. Mm-hmm. And there were some murders in that world. And Randy Jurgensen was sent down there because he resembled the victims.
0: Yeah. Billy, I'm going to press you to explain the liar's poker thing. What was the liar's poker sequence?
1: What happened was that uh, these cops were kind of degenerate themselves, and they were playing a game called liar's poker where you use a dollar bill and you have serial numbers, and the serial numbers might amount to uh, two pair, you know aces and yeah. nines or whatever or three sevens or whatever it might be and the one cop uh actually said that his hand was worse than it actually was yeah. so that he could lose the game yeah. and that in and the loss of the game involved getting whipped on the ass by the other cop's nightstick and that's what this cop wanted. He, I shot that scene. He was
0: spread eagle over the front of the spread cop. Spread
1: eagle over the front of a police car, getting whipped in the ass by the nightstick of another cop. And I shot that scene, but took it out. This scene Where that you're this? looking at is in a place called the Mineshaft, which was on West Twelfth Street and Little West Twelfth Street, and it was a members-only club. Mm-hmm for the purpose of extreme s Everyone in this scene is a member of the club. They're not actors. You couldn't get actors to perform this. They would never agree to do this, except for the principals. These guys who have dialogue here, yeah. they're actors. But all of the so-called... Extras are members of the club doing their thing. And how did you get access to
0: the clubs? Did you know the owners?
1: The owner was a man named Matty the Horse Ionello. Matty the Horse. Yeah, and he got his nickname because he had once punched a horse and knocked it out. Uh, But he was the head of the uh, Gambino crime family and another one as well. He was the head of two crime families in New York he was a friend of mine. I used to go to his house and have breakfast with him in his kitchen. Mm-hmm. He was a guy very much like Tony Soprano. And he w- was paid tribute by almost every business on the west side of New York. Right. Somebody else had the east side and a rival gang. And he owned the mine shaft. And I asked him for permission to film there. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, this isn't about my business, is it? I said, no, Maddie, it's total fiction. It's a total fictional world. Yeah. And he liked me. He was interested in the films I had been making at the time. And so he gave me a name, Wally Wallace. And he said, he's the manager of the mine shaft. I'm going to tell you his phone number. Don't write it down. Just remember it. And call him... Tomorrow after 12, call him tomorrow after 12 o'clock noon and ask, tell him what you want and he'll let you have what you want. Yeah. So I did. I called Wally Wallace. I went down to the mine shaft. He had been a film student at NYU. Right. And he knew and admired my films. Yeah. And I said, I want to come in and use the club, use the background, show everything that goes on. And he said, well, I'll talk it over with the members, but I don't see why not. Shortly afterward, permission came down. This first scene that you're watching, which is an assignation between two total strangers, um, this was... One of the murders that occurred,
0: and it was in the Saint James Hotel where we filmed it. One of the things about this scene, and this happens all the way through the film, is the sound of cruising is really noticeable and profound. The sound of leather, the sound of you know uh, sort of physical interaction, and I know you've always said that you kind of you build films you know from the from the sound upwards. Sound the sound of cruising is really tactile, isn't it?
1: Yes, it's what I heard. I didn't invent anything. Every scene that you see is part of either a police report or somebody's eyewitness description of what happened. Yeah. Now, in the case of this murder, there was no eyewitness description, but that's how the body was found, the way it's seen here
0: one of the things that happens in this murder and it happens a couple of times in the film is that we see a subliminal flash at the point of uh, the point of the murder um, can you say something about what inspired you to do that because obviously you'd used near subliminal imagery in Exorcist in which there is a there's a face that you see but as you said it's 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 liminal you can just about see it so what was the inspiration for the subliminals here
1: I felt that because the murderer used- a knife, a very sharp-edged knife to kill his victims, that there was a kind of reference to um, anal intercourse. And I used subliminal cuts of actual anal intercourse. Every time you see the knife go into flesh,
0: there was something written in a uh, an interview that you'd done, um, talking about when the when the film's going back and forth between the censors because obviously in America the ratings board as they're referred to, they had many problems with the films, and I read somewhere that the subliminals you put in quite late on, knowing that they that they would worry about other things but they wouldn't even notice the subliminals. Is that true or That's is that correct?
1: A... That's correct. I sent this film to the ratings board with 40 additional minutes, which amounted to pure male pornography. I shot it because I could, and I put it in the version that I showed the ratings board, because I knew they'd cut it, and leave me with the story that I needed to
0: tell. So you, so that extra material that people talk about—in fact, that uh, that James Franco made an entire fictional film about Interior Leather Bar—that was done in order to give the ratings board something to co- cut. <laughs> that was. Now,
1: did I ever tell you the James Franco story?
0: No, go ahead.
1: I had heard from some mutual friends that james franco was making this film interior Interior leather Leather bar Bar, which was about the missing 40 minutes from cruising yeah
0: which we'd all heard about and i you know we'd all it had become an, an almost legendary you know missing 40 minutes
1: well i heard that he was doing it but he didn't call me and then some months later he called me. I've never met James Franco. Yeah. I spoke to him on the phone. He called me this one time, and he said, you know, I'm doing a film about the missing 40 minutes of cruising. I said, I had heard that, yeah. And he said, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, what were the missing 40 minutes of cruising? I said, you you mean you're shooting this thing and you don't know? And he said, uh, he laughed and said, no. I said it was pure male pornography, done for the purpose of waving a red cake in front of the ratings board. I knew they'd cut all of it. Yeah. Uh, but I was able to shoot it because I became very friendly with the members of the Mineshaft Club.
0: This scene is playing out in a morgue, and Randy Jurgensen said that he thought it was the first time that a feature film had been allowed to shoot in a, in a morgue. Is that correct? Yes,
1: and, in fact, the chief medical examiner of New York was fired on the front pages of the newspapers in New York for letting us film those scenes. Really? And letting us film actual body parts. His name was Michael Bodden, and he's seen all over American television now as uh, an expert in... whenever there's a whenever there's a big crime scene, yeah. Baden will be consulted on television.
0: So how did you get that kind of access? Because I mean, you started out, you made documentaries about the police force. You've always been kind of quite close with uh, people like uh, Sonny Grosso. and did you just did you just know all these people anyway? I knew them, but of course, I had to ask their
1: permission to do all this stuff, and it was forthcoming. Uh, it turned out it was easier to get permission than one might have thought.
0: So it was just that other people hadn't asked the question or that you... Wouldn't... Or
1: didn't care. Okay. You know, originally, Steven Spielberg was going to direct this film. Yes,
0: now there is a list of people who were originally involved in cruising. I only was... know about Spielberg. But I can't imagine Steven Spielberg's cruising. He had only made
1: Sugarland Express at yeah. that point. Which is a
0: great little film. Yeah.
1: And my producer on the French Connection, Phil o- Phil D'Antoni, he owned the rights to the novel Cruising. Yeah. And I read it, and I didn't care for it. It was, I knew, no longer the scene. It was no longer the S&M scene that existed uh, at that time. It was from a much earlier period. So I wasn't interested in Cruising. And then came these separate events. Paul Bateson, who was in The Exorcist, accused of multiple murders. Articles by a very fine journalist in The Village Voice called Arthur Bell, who wrote uh, articles warning people to stay away from these clubs, warning gay people not to go there.
0: And, because these cases were happening and these murders were happening.
1: And yeah. unexplained deaths. AIDS did not have a name then. Right. But it was occurring while we were shooting without a name. And and then uh, Randy Jurgensen had told me that one of his assignments was to do what the Pacino character here yeah. is doing. He's asked in this scene by the Chief of Detectives, to go undercover into the s world to see if he can entrap a killer. Yeah. Why? Because he looks like all of the victims. Yeah. He has the characteristics of the victims.
0: Now, now tell me about the, the casting of Pacino, because, again, there were other names that were in the frame. I think Richard Gere was spoken of at one point. The, Who
1: the... first guy I talked to
0: was Richard Gere. Who was very keen to do the role. Oh, yeah.
1: He wanted to do it, and I think he would have been wonderful because he had a strange, ambiguous quality about him. And then I got a call after we had signed
0: Richard Gere. Oh, Richard got, Gere was actually signed for Oh, yeah. It. Oh, right, okay.
1: And I got a call from my agent, who was Pacino's agent. Right. And he said, Pacino's read your script, and he wants to do the film. And I talked to my producer Jerry Weintraub, and I said, "You know, Pacino now wants to do this. What What do you want to do?" He said, well, "He's the biggest star in America today. Yeah, off of The Godfather, and uh, and uh, Panic in Needle Park,
0: and which which is a fantastic film in which yeah. he's great, which he co-stars with Kitty Wynne, who of course you work with in Exorcist.
1: Yes, and so we decided to jump off of Richard Gere and we went to Pacino to do it. It turned out that Pacino had no idea what the vibe was in that community. He had never frequented that world and it freaked him out throughout the whole film. Mm -hmm. Uh, If there's a note that appears to be fear. In his performance, which I can see, it was
0: there for real. But you and I discussed this before once and I I said I always thought that actually it works completely for the character because he does appear to be out of his depth. He does appear to be on edge. And actually I think that is completely right for the character because the character is... Is exactly all of those things.
1: But there was another way to go. Okay. With a much more ambiguous yeah, yeah, figure. Yeah. Sure.
0: Which was my interest. Yeah. Now the other thing that famously freaked Pacino out was that whilst the film was being made, there were protests against the filming, and there was there was an awful lot of kind of disruption of the filming. And you, I mean, I know you thrive on, you know, conflict. Oh, I and, thought it was great. Yeah, okay, well, to describe it for me because you said that Pacino was just not ready for it. He would be
1: walking down a street on a quiet street in Greenwich Village after midnight and there'd be thousands of people opposing the film yelling out, Pacino, you fucking faggot, you little cocksucker, and, you know... And he was hearing this for the first time, because he was an he had become an idol, yeah. and now he's getting all of this hatred Chronicles. and and we actually got into they tried to disrupt our filming. there were two facets of gay life: those that supported the hardcore s and m world which we were shooting yeah who were in it, yeah. and then there was The other side, a massive number at the time of gay people who had just begun to make progress toward gay rights, and this story was clearly not in the best interest of gay rights. I didn't plan it that way, I didn't even think about it, but that's what occurred because They were making tremendous progress, which
0: they've now virtually achieved toward being accepted. Although it's interesting that in the critical reappraisal of cruising, one of the things that's been said about it is that... um, that that at the time, some of the people opposing it were opposing it because actually what they didn't want was the kind of the the leather scene front and centre. But actually, people I know from the leather scene say, well, why shouldn't we have been front and centre? We had every right to live our lives the way we wanted, and this idea of being shut down. And there are now... I mean, at the time when Cruising came out, there was a lot of contrary voices, but there are now a large number of voices. It is one of the only representations of that scene, which was a consensual S&M scene of people, you know, people living the life that they wanted to live. So I think cruising was right at the middle of all that stuff. And I I also think that it's a forerunner of what happened with Basic Instinct, which again was something which was protested at the time and suddenly had all this other stuff put on top of it, which wasn't really what the film was about.
1: Yes, I... I'm not certain of the basic instinct correction. I connection. I bow to you for that. <laughs> but uh a few years ago there was a special screening of cruising at the Cannes Film Festival. I was there. Yeah. It was a Gala Hi. anniversary screening. Yeah. It was a packed house. Tarantino was there as well. Tarantino I think. was there and It got a tremendous reaction, and Sherry asked Tarantino. Sherry's your wife? My wife, Sherry Lansing. She asked Quentin Tarantino why he thought there was this tremendous interest in cruising, again, some 30 years later, and why it was given a special evening at the Cannes Film Festival. And he said because it represented a nostalgia for a lifestyle that was there and then gone yeah. because of AIDS and because of, you know, various other threatening things, but that there was a nostalgia yeah. among the practitioners of S&M Let me for just that ask,
0: scene. For example, this walking down the street now... I was told that while this was happening, you could hear protesters shouting in the background, which is why you did an awful lot of overdubbing, which actually helped the the overall soundtrack of Cruising. Is that right?
1: Yes. The other actor with Pacino is a very fine young man who's become a very good director in television. His name is Don Scardino. And he's probably the most sympathetic character in the film. He is a very... Extremely um, uh, successful, uh, uh, even though striving. He lives a kind of a normal lifestyle as a gay man. And there's nothing presented about him that is in any way um, controversial.
0: I uh, saw an interview with him in which he said that during this sequence, he said there was protesters outside and at the end of it, they had to, to get a, you know, some security guards to, op- you know, to open the, the protesters up so that Pacino could get into his, into his car. And apparently he said to Pacino, do you mind if I come with you? And Pacino said, why? He said, because I've never, I've never been rushed into a limousine through protesters before. It was a
1: wild scene. There were thousands of people protesting, throwing rocks and bottles, and my crew and I and members of the S&M community were throwing rocks and bottles right back at them. It was a pitch battle. Every mounted policeman in New York was assigned to protect the film by Mayor Koch. At the time?
0: I mean... And I've said before that you thrive on conflict, but did you, how did you feel in the middle of all this, this It was exciting, stuff? you know,
1: and I understood it, not beforehand, yeah. but I understood the protests as representing uh, the fact that uh, this was not meant to represent all of gay life, and it wasn't. And it sure
0: now this this scene. This, this is a
1: bar in the, on the west side of New York, okay. not the S and M bar. It's a is a drinking bar uh, called the Ramrod.
0: And were all the locations real, or were any of them? We reproduced? never built
1: a set. Okay, so everything,
0: everything was real. And do, you didn't you didn't have any uh, access issues because you knew the people who were running the clubs?
1: Yes, I mean a couple of places turned us down. After the protest started, so we just went to another place. But we filmed in the mine shaft, yeah, and we filmed in the bars
0: in that area. Now it's a, it's an interesting thing with Pacino, sort of trying to find his way through uh, through the environment. And this thing we were talking about before about him being, you know, like a fish out of water. Him being, you know, I think that I do think that nervousness works well for the character do you look at his performance now and think that's what i was looking for how do you feel about it now
1: well i think it works but he he was definitely not the easiest actor i worked with he was mostly unprepared in what way uh there was a kind of marlon brando school of acting in which he wouldn't bother to learn his lines the lines would be written On a cardboard on the floor or on the ceiling, and sometimes with Brando, on a piece of paper on the other actor's head. (laughs) And when there was a shot over, yes, it's totally true. And (laughs) Brando's idea was you wanted to be spontaneous, right? But you could be spontaneous and still know your lines. Yeah. And and Pacino very often was just. Not prepared. Now, uh, I've never worked with an actor who was less prepared than I'm, he was.
0: But well, that's—I I, mean—I'm—I'm I'm surprised because just because you know he's Pacino. Now, one of the things that's happening is this parade of faces, including um, one of the people that we've seen as a cop. And the idea that this is setting up is that there's there is a certain type, a certain face, a certain. And one of the things that Cruising does is it plays with identities of who's the killer, who's the victim, who's a cop, who's a criminal. And one of the scenes I love most, which is coming up later, in which he goes he, he goes into a club and he's the only person not dressed as a cop. But you're doing that deliberately all the way through, aren't you? I know you don't want to give specifics away, but that idea that it it's a type rather than a person. There were multiple killers right. involved in the actual
1: murders in, in the mine shaft. There were multiple murderers and they're played by multiple actors and yes that that is true and because the the only thing that kind of
0: unites them is that they all have a similar physical appearance which is what Salvino's character says when he first gets pacino to do it he says the honest truth is they look like you
1: yes and that's what Randy Jurgensen, the actual cop, was sent to do.
0: So this was a controversial moment. There are scenes here that are sort of on the borderline between, between uh, simulated and, and actual sex. Oh,
1: I shot everything in that scene. Yeah. It's a fist-fucking scene, and it went on for minutes.
0: And you did that because you knew that the ratings board would say you have to take it out?
1: Yeah, but there's still
0: a fragment of it left in, yeah. as you can see. That's kind of, that's you sort of playfully seeing how far you can... Not playfully,
1: Mark. That was the world. Yeah, sure, but... but... I I chose that world, you know, uh, because I found it fascinating. There had been nothing done about that world. It was a taboo subject, yeah, and that attracted me instantly.
0: Tell me about the Central Park scenes, because I love the 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 lighting of the Central Park scenes. But you said this is not constructed lighting, this is what this what this kind of this area. This is how it looked.
1: This is an area called the Ramble, which was a assignation place okay. for uh, for hook male sexual activity.
0: And again what we see once again is two characters who look physically similar. Leading or not leading, the whole idea that the that the film is playing with, because also the voice of the killer is a is a is another voice that we hear through different characters. So you're deliberately wrong-footing because I'd seen Cruising quite a few times before I realised that it wasn't one character. There is one character
1: who gets most of the blame mm-hmm. and who had issues with his father.
0: Yeah, who again in whose mouth we hear the voice.
1: Yes. Uh,
0: But there was a young
1: man who, when I was doing my research for the film, who survived one of these attacks. And he told me that one of the things that was said to him by the attempted murderer was this little stupid couplet that he was singing, who's here, I'm here, you're here, and. I made a note of that, and I kept that in the film. And it's said by a couple of the murderers. Yeah. Uh, There is not an attempt to confuse about who the killer is, but to underline the fact that there were multiple murderers and um, they all resembled one another.
0: One of the things that I think drew you to this story this is presumptuous of me is that you've always had a kind of interest in 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 like closed, slightly secretive society particularly you know like policemen priests you've made films about these and there is something about the uh the world of cruising in which it's all about uh you know a character becoming it being on both sides of the law the Pacino character goes on And I think you are fascinated by that. I think you're fascinated by closed male worlds, whether it's police, whether it's priests, whether it's criminals. I think that is something that you are drawn to. Would you agree with that?
1: Yes. Now, I'm not conscious of it at the time, but what intrigued me about Cruising was that it was a murder mystery set in a very closed-off private world. Yes. That... uh, most New Yorkers and very few Americans were aware of at the time. And it was happening in places like this, Central Park in New York City, where this scene is taking place. And it was happening in the private clubs like the mine shaft. And so while it... While the murders were covered by the newspapers, they were not covered prominently, mm-hmm. because it was thought to be uh, an issue of gay men, mm-hmm. and that was the prejudice that
0: existed at the time. And What is it that you you think draws you to that? As I said, that thing about the closed male environment, and as I said, it, I do see it in in your interest in policemen, your interest in priests. It's it's Where are you? What do you think attracts you to that?
1: The fact that it has not been overused in previous films. I can't cite any examples of any film that inspired cruising, or The Exorcist, for that matter. I can think of a film that inspired Sorcerer very much, Uh, but most of the other films that I've made... If they weren't already plays, they were, uh, you know, sort of original pieces about closed-off worlds yeah. that neither I nor the audience was privileged to take part in.
0: As Pacino is walking down the street, we start to hear the chink of, you know, he has, like, a, you know, accoutrements, and, things, and you hear this recurrent... You start to hear these recurrent sounds... And it's interesting that an awful lot of the storytelling in cruising is to do with what you hear, isn't it? It's, you know, that chink, chink sound then becomes a clue or maybe, a, you know, a, maybe a sort of tantalizing detail. The soundtrack is where the story is being told.
1: Yes, the, the sound of the leather jackets, of course, and... Uh, the keychains that they carry. How
0: did you record the leather jackets? Was it literally scrunched? Because you talked once about the head turn in The Exorcist being um, Gonzalo a Gavira, wallet. yeah, with a wallet. It was
1: yeah. a, a cracked leather wallet with credit cards being tracked very close, uh, cracked very yeah. close to a microphone. But yes, all of the sounds were recorded afterwards yeah. for
0: emphasis. Yeah. Can you tell me something about uh, Karen Allen? Because I think she, her role gets overlooked, and I think she's terrific in this film. Well, she plays
1: the old familiar role of the hero's girlfriend. But along the course of the film, she comes to notice the changes in him yeah. and to be disturbed by them. Which is what happens in the life of a cop who does dangerous work.
0: Did you talk to Randy about that, about how it affected all his of this happened life?
1: to Randy? He started to he doubt his own sexuality by going undercover in the S and M world.
0: And you had first met Randy on French Connection, of course. Yes. Because he's actually in French Connection, isn't he?
1: He's in the French Connection, but he was a homicide detective for 20 years, and he worked with Sonny Grasso. After Eddie Egan did. Eddie Egan was the Gene Hackman character in the French Connection. Yeah. And Sonny Grasso was the Roy Scheider character. And they were then separated and transferred to other precincts.
0: After the French Connection case.
1: And Sonny worked with Randy Jurgensen. That's how I met and became friendly with Randy and his life as a cop was every so bit as interesting as Sonny's and Eddie's
0: can you describe Randy because i when i first met him he first he was quite hard to find at first and then he he seemed to have an extraordinary life he he had you know at one point he had been involved in a in, in a shooting that he'd had to he'd had to disappear for some time i mean he seemed to have had a really extraordinary life he there was a riot at a mosque in harlem
1: Uh, in New York City and Randy was hit in the head by a brick at this riot and almost died. He was severely injured. Randy is, in fact, was the most proficient of all the detectives I've ever worked with. And he had the most interesting stories. And they were just, for him, just an ordinary Part of life as a detective
0: he told me as well that when you did the French connection car chase he was in the in the front of the car with a police badge in case you got stopped because the car didn't have any markings on it when the, when you famously ran the 20 blocks he said he was down the front when Bill Hickman was doing the the stunt drive and you were just you were I in was the back.
1: operating the camera from over Bill Hickman's shoulder because my cameraman and the director of photography who does the lighting, they were both married men with families. <laughs> and we went for twenty-six blocks at ninety miles an hour. And Randy was on the floor in the front seat. In case we got stopped by yeah. policemen who didn't know what the hell was going on, he would jump out
0: and show his ID. This scene I think is it's almost like the kind of it's the quintessential scene in cruising because we have an undercover cop going undercover into a club, at which he's stopped, and somebody says, ''Are you a policeman?'' And he thinks he's been made. And the reason that he's been made is because he's the only person in the club who isn't dressed as a cop. And he didn't realise...
1: This was an actual... They had theme nights. Yes, There was precinct night, which this this scene depicts. There was jockstrap night, where everybody could wear only a jockstrap. There were totally naked nights. There were various theme nights in the clubs. This scene depicts precinct night, where all of the members of the club engaged in various sexual activities are dressed as cops, except Pacino, who didn't realize that, wasn't let in on the code that night and kind of slipped past the front door until he's accosted by the two guys who are the wow. general managers of the mine shaft. The and attitude. it's I'm a strange to to play on what's going on. They ask him, he is an undercover <laughs> cop. They ask him if he's a cop. He says, no. And why? Because you're supposed to dress is like a cop? <laughs> a cop. This is the actual area, the exterior of the mine shaft. Right. Uh, and that's. Uh, little west 12th street so it was the um uh the slaughterhouse area yeah the, well. district, yeah the meat packing district
0: when you were researching and you were going to these clubs did you have to obey the dress codes because one of the things is you know you're only allowed into the clubs if you're wearing just and i read an interview with you once in which you said that you, there, you went on jockstrap night and you just you went and yes and it. i
1: was the ugliest guy in the room Nobody ever hit on me. Uh, Matty the Horse, who owned that club, uh, made sure that I went with one of his gunsels, who was known as Uncle Mort. And Uncle Mort had a little twenty-eight pistol hidden in his sock in case we ran into any trouble. But Uncle Mort had a big beer belly and... I certainly was not in the shape of an Olympic athlete. And we were the two ugliest guys in that club, I'll tell you, in our jockstraps. And when Uncle Mort had done a lot of bad things in his life. And when he and I came out of that club that night, we looked at each other and said, what was that? The first time we, can you believe this? We had no idea that this stuff was going on in a club. I mean, I wasn't so unsophisticated that I didn't think it was happening in the privacy of someone's home. Yeah. But I didn't realize
0: there were the whole clubs dedicated to it. And when you were in... Not many, by the way. No, no, sure. But when you were in that environment, it sounds to me that you felt uh, completely safe. It, it didn't, you know, you, we, we were with somebody who had a person, but but you seem to have been warmly accepted, and people cooperated, and well, I viewed what was
1: going on largely as dress up. Yeah, these guys were lawyers by day, stockbrokers. Yeah, they worked in in various businesses by day, where they wore a suit and tie, and at night. They had another identity completely yeah. and were allowed to give free rein to their imaginations.
0: But that's kind of... That's the essence of, uh, you know, fantasy, and that is exactly that, isn't it? It is dress-up. It's, yes. it's role-play, it's cosplay, and that's, that's what it is. And whether it's leather or whatever, it's a way of, you know, becoming somebody else, of adopting a different persona for relaxation. I went to a lot of
1: the club's that were not exclusively male. Yeah. Where they had men and women, sometimes only women, who were acting out their fantasies. Yeah. It just so happened that in the world of the mine shaft, there were these murderers yeah. and then unsolved deaths, which turned out shortly after the film came out, to get a name, which
0: was aids. Yeah. I want to say something about this scene. I don't want you to be specific about it, but various different people are playing various different characters in this scene. I mean, the per- that we, we, we've we seen at least two people now playing the same character in the space of one scene, and there is also a third voice which is being used. So in this scene, which again is going to, we're going to see a flash of the subliminals, is doing all that stuff that the narrative is doing, saying it's not one thing, it's a number, it's it, it, it's a number of different identities
1: i don't think there was ever an actual final solution to the murders and that's in the w- film in the in, ri- in life right and that's what i was trying to reflect in the film this uh, sequence on the screen now is from an actual male por- pornographic film yeah and play it's played uh the murder scene is played against
0: that. And the the ratings board had a big problem with this scene.
1: They had a problem with every scene. They had a problem when the credits came on. You know, I mean, they had never seen or experienced anything like this. It. We had to go back 50 different times to get an hour rating. And I would say to this day, people still think it should have been an x mm-hmm. and so do i i think this should have been an x-rated film so
0: why wasn't it we went back 50 times so we're going to see another subliminal i think yeah there very quickly
1: they are subliminal yeah that's why yeah, they're exactly yeah. just
0: a few frames so so you went back 50 times to the ratings board
1: with different cuts with different stuff taken out. And you were being advised by I was very interesting. The head of the ratings board was a man named Richard Hefner, Hefner. at the time who had the longest-running show on public broadcasting was called The Open Mind. Yeah. And we used to refer to it as The Empty Head. <laughs> uh, and he was a censor. But his predecessor was a man named Aaron Stern. Right. Who was the first head of the ratings board. Yeah. And he's a guy who fortunately saw The Exorcist first. And he called me. I didn't know him. And he said he was going to give The Exorcist an R, which meant restricted, but with With no no cuts. cuts. And he said he's going to get a lot of pressure for that and so will we Mm -hmm. but he thought the film should be seen as i not by young people uh i didn't even feel it should be seen by young people accompanied by a parent no yeah
0: by young people i'd say under 15 in my view oh yeah i would agree billy i mean i think the the exorcist is a film for adults
1: yeah and so is this yeah and uh so uh Aaron Stern became a, a quick supporter of the exorcism. Then he retired, and Richard Hefner got his job. Yeah. And when Richard Hefner saw this film, he said, all I can suggest to you is that you go see my predecessor, Aaron Stern, who was then a psychiatrist in New York. Yeah. And we often use him to consult on difficult films for a rating and we went to see aaron and he said yes i i often consult with the ratings board and i charge $1000 a day and it cost us $50000 which was a princely sum to for him to help us slowly extract scenes and frames that eventually brought the rating to an end. so this eye.
0: is randy there randy
1: Jurgensen is the fellow on the right with the mustache
0: and one of the things about uh, this and they, they've now found a clue but the, the Silvino character is told you have to solve this because there's great political pressure and this was actually true because this refers back to what you were saying about uh if i admit to more killings it will clean things up and it will be a pull polit- so the whole thing was very politicized in real life wasn't yes
1: it? they they couldn't have all these unsolved murders and there was going to be political conventions coming to new york and so the pressure was on the sorvino character to clean up the murders and he passed the pressure yeah. on the pacino character
0: let's talk about the soundtrack because one of the things about cruising is that the sound um that you know this is of course this is one of the sequences that's the fist fucking scene yeah that you had to keep trimming down and down and down until there was a point that they thought okay you see you still got that the the greased fist uh, i originally showed it all that's a
1: guy being fist fucked in a sling
0: and so when you first gave it to the to the to the ratings board, you saw it all with close up. Okay, I and mean, and you put that in knowing that they would go. You can't have that, but you can have the well, others. Of course, sh- you
1: <laughs> couldn't do that.
0: Okay, so one of the things that's interesting about cruising is that the soundtrack of it is. Uh, a soundtrack that you have very specifically created. It's not the sound that you actually would have been hearing in those clubs. So tell me about the soundtrack. Well,
1: the music yeah. that was played in these clubs yeah. was the same music that was being played in all the so-called straight clubs. Yeah, disco. Disco. Donna yeah. Summer, yeah. Giorgio Moroder. My Energy. KC and the Sunshine Band. Yeah. And I hated that stuff.
0: I just hated it. You're not a disco bunny, Billy. Really. I wasn't.
1: Uh, But that was played at the Peppermint Lounge and at all of the dance clubs throughout America. And I decided to get rid of all of it, and I went out with Jack Nietzsche, who was a great pop music producer. And he found all of these young garage bands that turned out to be, at the very beginning of punk rock in Los Angeles. Groups like uh, The the Germs and uh, uh, Madeline Von Ritz and uh, uh, my own favorite uh, uh, the stuff that's being played now uh, It's Willie DeVille. Will, Willie DeVille or Mink DeVille as he was called then. And these were early punk bands that I put in because they had a harder edge than the actual music of the clubs. Now, it's been stated that the film might have been much more successful if I had used the actual music. But I hated that music. And I didn't want it filthying up the soundtrack (laughs) of my film. You know, it was... And there was nothing specific or edgy about it at all and clearly the
0: picture has an edge to it yeah yeah so how did you get did did you commission new songs for yes okay so how did that work jack
1: nietzsche went out he found all these groups we went into a recording studio and recorded them and some of the bands have become quite famous yeah if not legendary in that movement yeah the germs especially yeah and a guy called Darby Crash, who was 22 years old when I met him, and a dope fiend who said he was going to kill himself at an early age, and did. Right. I don't think Darby made it to 25.
0: But there's recently been a uh, a beautiful vinyl issue of the Cruising soundtrack, yeah. which has now become something of a, of a classic. Because it was the beginning of punk rock. And so... Do you think that that's one of the things that was overlooked about Cruising, was the fact that it... Because I remember the first time... One of the first times I met you, and I said, oh, I, you know, I've I've got a Japanese import of the Cruising soundtrack, and you said, I love the Cruising soundtrack. It's almost the thing I'm most proud of with the film.
1: Yeah, I do love the soundtrack. The music was... Ooh, that's Randy Jergensen again on the right. And that, the actor there, is... Brad Davis's brother. Yeah. Uh, remember Brad Davis yes, from of Midnight course. Express? Yeah, And this is his brother. Uh, And he's based on a character that I saw quite a bit of uh, in that area. Uh, Not the actual guy, but he's being played by uh, uh, this young actor, Davis. Uh, This is Ed O'Neill in one of his first roles. The guy who played in Married with Children later. And I used him in Blue Chips again as well, and this was one of his first films.
0: Blue Chips is a film which gets over. Blue Chips was a number one hit in the in the states, wasn't it? It's
1: back. It's it's come back for the whatever anniversary it is. It's been re-released. Wow,
0: that's a film I haven't. I must go back and watch Blue Chips again. I remember seeing, it, gave, it over here got a fairly limited release because we didn't really understand the sport right it was one of those things that you actually had to understand the rules of the sport to understand the movie now what happens here is this we are we're essentially being shown a murder weapon but again like the thing with the murder it's not one it's suddenly everywhere you suddenly realize that everyone's got
1: a steak knife. yeah in various steak restaurants that was a common
0: knife. Who's this that we're seeing there holding knife? This
1: is a guy uh, called uh, Bart Heyman. He's in The Exorcist. He was uh, one of the doctors in The Exorcist. And that's the second time I worked with him.
0: The scene that he's in The Exorcist is one of those scenes in which a doctor smokes whilst having a conversation yeah. with a patient. Because that's the world that it was in then. Okay, so now... Pacino's character has essentially kind of completely found his place uh, in the what he... And everything about the way he moves is kind of different. Was, how did Pacino... Did you shoot in sequence
1: or did you shoot out of sequence? More or less okay. in sequence. I mean, you'd go to a location. This is a famous gay assignation hotel called... Uh, oh, God. The St. James's we the saw Anvil. before. The this Anvil. is called The Anvil. Okay. And it's about two or three blocks away from the mine shaft. And uh, they rented rooms for gay sex yeah. at the time.
0: But at this point, this is the point at which cruising is the closest to being a police procedural because this is the stake this is the moment in which you've actually got people outside and it's bugged and if this is this is closest to the kind of world that you were investigating in for example french connection which i think as i said before you have always had a fascination with so this is as close as cruising gets to actually being something that makes sense yeah. in terms of a crime narrative in which there is a single possible outcome isn't it
1: yes they're focusing on one young man who seemed to be a troublesome figure in the clubs, and Pacino, it, in effect, entraps him. Is this equipment all real? Are they, is yes, this... this is all... Listening equipment as you can see it was quite primitive and didn't work very well
0: Yeah, I mean, but it almost looks like a prop it looks like it's (laughs) it's, it's you know It's got unbelievably clunky with dials and things on it and so this is again. This is all location and were you being protested against while this was happening? Were night shoots interrupted? I don't recall
1: that. I, I, you know, we were we tried to be one step ahead of the protesters whenever possible.
0: Somebody who was an extra in the film remembered people with reflectors, shining reflectors into the cameras to sort yeah, of. Yeah, I don't to, think that happened. In no, this obviously scene. not because it's a nighttime sh- uh, shoot. But. Uh,
1: well, that's when they, reflected. Off the street oh, okay. lamps. Oh, but, okay, fine. But not in this scene. And that's, this was actually shot... And that's... A staircase at the anvil. Was that is that Sonny? That's Sonny Grasso right there, the character played by Roy Scheider in The French Connection.
0: So this is something that you like doing with your films, is putting real people in those roles. I mean, The Exorcist, there are priests who are actually priests, Father Tom Birmingham and people like that. And in this, there is Sonny, there is Randy you know they
1: understand what cops do better than actors understand it so i use actual cops to play cops very often
0: and also in the case of randy it's interesting because randy was undercover he was kind of an actor because surely going undercover is a form of acting yes
1: it is indeed and randy understood that and Randy was able to carry that over from his actual experience.
0: Was Pacino fine about doing that scene? I mean, he's, you know. No late. problem. Now, something's going to happen in this scene that is the the, the cause of much uh, interest that a, an apparently random character comes in wearing a cowboy hat and a jock strap. He was
1: a six foot five African American with a cowboy hat and a jock strap. He's a police officer, yeah. and during an interrogation, that guy would come in. In real life. In real life. That's the guy who did it, who so the, comes in. Right, so the
0: guy we're going to see is actually is the guy. the
1: guy who did it, okay. and he'd come in and slap the suspect around, and the reason they did that is because the guy would say... I told him I was innocent. The suspect was. I told them, and all of a sudden, this six-foot-five black guy comes in in a jockstrap. Here we go. And here he is, and he's got a cowboy hat on, and he hits me right across the face. And the judge would say, "Yeah, right." <laughs> a six-foot-five guy in a jockstrap and a cowboy hat came into a police station, hit you in the face. The judge would scoff at it.
0: So that okay, so that's the real That's guy. a
1: moment of surrealism that the cops
0: practiced constantly. You see, I always imagined that that was like the pick your feet and Poughkeepsie thing from French Connection. That 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 Sunny Sonny once described that to me as he said we would ask people that because it would bamboozle them. You'd say, You ever pick your feet and poughkeepsie you go, What? And it would and then they'd be so confused that they'd end up confessing answering the real answering question. Answering the real question, yeah. And One the, guy would ask. Real
1: questions about real crimes that occurred, and the other cop, his partner, would ask questions that were totally surreal, that had nothing to do with anything, to bend their minds, and that's how cops work
0: then. And one of the things that you know that the the suspect they're interrogating says, he says, "Who is that guy?" And he is—that's the whole point. He's completely freaked out. But I remember, I've had so many discussions with people about who is that guy. So he genuinely, real cop who actually did that. Yes, and if
1: you told the story as a witness in front of a judge, <laughs> the judge, who was probably programmed to know, but was had plausible deniability, who would ever expect a sequence like this to occur in a police station? And how did you find out about it? Who told you this? Randy day? and Sonny and I, all the other cops who... Well, I didn't make any of this stuff up. This is what they would do. And you know, I found it unusual to say the least. It was very extracurricular, but that's how they would elicit a confession. Get up. Get on your feet. Get your pants. So that whole that whole
0: All that stuff that we see because one thing is a typical interrogation okay and so my other question therefore is why did the police trust you to tell this story because you don't paint them in the best possible light if one of their interrogation techniques is to put some you know and actually what the what we learned from this scene is that he's innocent it's not it's not it's not that guy
1: that's correct why did they trust me because They knew that while I was going to tell the truth about police work, I was neither going to mock it nor uh, 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 ridicule it. This is the way they worked. That was. That sort of behavior was quite common. It isn't today. No, of course. If you did something like that today, And it was ever learned that that's how they conducted an interrogation, the case would be thrown out because of victims' rights now are much stronger. But in those days, in every city that I was in, the cops
0: held court in the streets like that. Can you say something about Paul Savino? Because I think one of the interesting things about his character is he kind of becomes this sort of semi-father figure to Pacino. And there is, this, there is a, a great sadness about him.
1: I asked Paul to play the part as though he had seen some of the worst things imaginable in his life. Play the whole picture that way. And I often use metaphor yeah. with actors rather than give them specific instructions like be sad or be happy or whatever. I'll give them a, a little story to react to. That's usually something I've learned about them from their own lives. Okay. And I asked Paul to play the film as a guy who has seen every imaginable hardship you can think of as a police officer and was a f- as, a, 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 as a high-ranking police officer and had been affected by it. Mm-hmm. And so there is a great sadness about his character which comes to fruition when he finally learns that the Pacino in? character that he's put so much trust in is a possible murderer. Mm-hmm.
0: Which is kind of where the story's going, that that the two sides do completely cross over. That you've got a world in which at one point uh, somebody says there are more people out there dressing like cops than there are actual cops.
1: Yes, that was a line that I had heard from one of the
0: police captains. So the impersonating cops thing because... It's
1: hyperbole, but there were a lot of guys impersonating cops.
0: Randy had told this story about the salt and pepper... uh, It was like a salt and pepper shakedown in which people who were impersonating cops would be... um, would be ripping guys off. And yeah. he said that that was one of the things that he investigated. And he said he was really relieved to find that they weren't cops because many people had said, but it turned out that they they had a, maybe even they had a squad car or something. He said they were very, very good impersonations of there cops. Was,
1: there was a lot of that,
0: yeah. And that plays right into your interest, doesn't it? In undercover and secrets, society, you know?
1: Well, I had stuff that I shot depicting that. Oh, really? But I took it out because it wasn't directly involved with the the main story okay as i took out the scene i described to you about liar's poker
0: when you were writing the script did you refer at all back to the novel or was the because no. you were you were not, not a fan of the novel
1: i just used the essential premise yeah of a young uh police officer who was sent on this difficult assignment
0: right off the bat. Look at the, world, the world-weary the way that Salvino walks in that. He I mean, has a
1: limp, and we don't know where that came from.
0: He was probably
1: wounded in some uh, action uh, along the way. And
0: there's an interesting duality being set up here because, as I said, the, the Pacino character is almost now sort of seeing him as a father figure, and he's basically saying, you have to take me out of this. And, and he get, and he Which he doesn't do. And then we're, we're then going to move into a section of the film in which one of the characters who may be the killer has a similar father issue. Is
1: certainly one of the killers, the, the yeah. character that is coming up. But in this scene, this reflects what Randy told me more than anything else. Right. Uh, about his experience. It really got to him, and he didn't think he could... Do it it was you know it he was playing games with his own psyche at the time and it was it was an interesting confession from him to me
0: this was the film that you made after uh sorcerer which had been you know a kind of is now is kind of i think is regarded by, you know by some as your best film but at the time sorcerer had been a you know a, 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 a financial disaster this is not playing it safe, Billy, going from Sorcerer, which you'd had such a, you know... I remember you told me that the first time you opened a review of Sorcerer and realised that, that the film was not going to be the success that you'd wanted it to be. This is the opposite of playing, making something that you feel is going to be a safe hit. It's almost like you're challenging the audience to, you know, to do it again.
1: I wasn't interested in making safe hits. I was interested in stories that I found moving and provocative, uh, and that were in many ways extremely edgy and not comforting. There are no obvious heroes in any of my films, because I don't believe in the concept of heroes. I believe there's good and evil in everyone especially cops and priests that you mentioned. There is good and evil in them. And uh, I've seen this proven out again and again. In the scene you're looking at, Pacino is uh, trying to see if there's a familiar face from one of the clubs who was involved with a college professor. Yeah, he's looking at a
0: yearbook, yeah.
1: Who was murdered. And he lights upon a face... And uh, recognizes him, and then calls Columbia University, where we also filmed, uh, to the registrar's office. And that's the character there.
0: And this is now. Tell me who that actor is. His name
1: is Richard Cox,
0: and he's a he was a, an acclaimed theater uh, performer. Yes, yep.
1: and and a musician. So how did you find him? He just came in on an audition with a lot of other people. And I thought he was very interesting and very hip.
0: And uh, yes. is, just chronologically, between Sorcerer and Cruising, is Brink's job between them, or is it, I forget the chronology of that? Uh, so do I. <laughs> uh,
1: after Sorcerer, I think I made... Uh,
0: the Brink's job, yeah. Brink's job, and then then, uh, and, then and then cruising. So that is cruising
1: in... was nineteen eighty.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yes, but I always think of cruising as coming almost straight after Sorcerer, because Sorcerer took such a long time to make. It was like three years, something like that, which is astonishing. Okay, so now we kind of move into this the section of the film which becomes a surveillance, a surveillance of
1: this character, who's a student, uh, a music student at Columbia University. And that's where this is being filmed. This is Morningside Heights, in um, in the uh, upper part of uh, Manhattan.
0: And again, is all this location, or is any of this you're doing? There's no sets. So what was the what was the key thing about doing everything on location? Because everyone always says location photography is always more difficult. I don't know
1: that it is. It, it's honest and. I would select locations that were typical of the character and their and their environment and why build it if you can go there
0: there's an interview with uh with him in which he said that the, the there was a discussion with you and him about what the interior of the apartment looked like and it was it, he said it was completely not what he had expected in terms of what was in that in interior it's very spare very as you spare, can spare yeah and so do you do you involve your cast usually in that kind of, how does that work yes
1: i'll let them bring personal items into uh the place where they're supposed to be living or working and cruising is shot by who's the dp It's a fellow named jimmy contner who still works a lot in television
0: and how did in he los
1: angeles how did you end he up was with, an with... operator yeah. on a couple of my films and
0: Just for people who don't know, an operator is the person who physically...
1: Operates the camera. There are two people who are involved with photography. The director of photography is the fellow who does the lighting. Right. The operator is the fellow who operates the camera, does all the movement.
0: So, for example, on French Connection... Owen Roisman is the DP, but your your operator was Ricky Bravo, yeah,
1: a guy who photographed the Cuban Revolution at Castro's side,
0: which is one of the reasons you have that incredible what I think you you called the induced documentary feel that is as if you're watching a documentary.
1: I mean, Ricky Bravo could could pick up a camera and photograph an actual revolution, <laughs> you know, and so. That's why The French Connection looks as it does. But then I made many other films with Ricky, uh, including Sorcerer. He was an operator, and The Brinks Job, and this. He now, was a terrific camera operator.
0: Okay, now, in the case of this, at one point, you, I think I saw a version of Cruising in which... Did you put, like, a, 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 a zoom lens onto Pacino's face in one version... Where? Where we see Pacino looking from the window. Was there not a version of it in which the kind of... I don't
1: recall that.
0: Okay. Because one of the things that you've done is you've gone back and recolored... You said it's a very difficult movie to time. It was
1: because I didn't want it to be too colourful, but I didn't want to distort the colour either. So uh, I arrived at a version that's as close to the reality of how this stuff looked as
0: possible. Okay, so you wanted it to have a kind of, again, a documentary feel, but it has it. It again, it's got that kind of heightened documentary thing to it, particularly in the club scenes. Which I know, for example, like the scene when Pacino is dancing when he inhales on the on the handkerchief, which I suppose is amyl nitrate or something. Yeah. In the the in the version that we now have, you've done something with the color there that you almost no. I
1: did. I took out a color effect. Right. Okay. That I originally had there. I thought, you know, why should I pump this stuff up any more than what you see? I originally tried to uh, show the effect of the emol nitrate. Yeah. Uh, when someone takes a whiff of it from a handkerchief.
0: Yeah. Okay, and so, but then you then took that out because the story. I thought
1: it was pointless.
0: Okay, so this is breaking into an apartment in broad daylight. That's
1: what. Uh, Jurgensen had to do at one time. And I said, Randy, I've chosen this building over here. It's got an exterior fire escape in the front of the building. How would you get into this apartment? And he told me I would just climb up the fire escape, use a newspaper to jam the air conditioning unit, push it out of the window, and go in. And I said, well, what happened... What would happen if anyone saw you do that? He said, I'd show him my badge. I'm a cop.
0: So many of the things that are in cruising that seem the most incongruous are actually... They were the solutions involved in the real story. Now, he then, he finds the the box of letters. Tell me, I know you don't want to be specific about things, but he goes through the... He, he leaves the apartment in a way that lets the killer know that he's been in there so what is what's he doing he's sort of letting
1: the killer once he finds enough clues to the character of the killer he decides to bait him and let him know that he's about to sort of freak the killer out yeah and let the killer feel that he's being followed which he was
0: yeah can you tell me, because you told me a story once about the very first time that Jerry Weintraub showed a cut of the film to, I suppose... Richard Hefner, yeah. who was the head of the ratings Yeah, board. so tell me, because you, you you described his reaction rather fabulously. Well, he
1: Jerry did something that was never done. Jerry was a great character. He was a, worked with Elvis, right? He, he was Elvis's music promoter. You know, Colonel... Uh, the Colonel Tom Parker w- was Elvis's manager, but Jerry produced the concerts right. for many years, yeah, as well as for Frank Sinatra, and uh, the Moody Blues, and John Denver, yeah. me- Neil Diamond, many others, and he produced this film, and Jerry was a great character, and
0: kind of larger than life,
1: right? Oh yeah, and he. Did what nobody did at the time. He invited the head of the ratings board to come to his house at the beach, have dinner, and then a screen would come down and he ran this movie with the 40 minutes of male pornography <laughs> in it. And I was, it was just Jerry and his wife Jane and myself. And Richard that? Hefner. Yeah, okay. And. <laughs> Uh, I was sitting behind Hefner, and the movie starts to play. The first scene with the murder comes on, and I start hearing, oh, God, oh, no, no, no. Pretty soon I see Hefner get up. He takes his jacket off. He takes his jacket off. Uh, oh, He takes his tie off. And then I hear... The moans were getting louder. Oh, no, he was saying. These scenes were flashing before his eyes. He's the head of the ratings board. And he said, oh, no, no, I don't believe it. And then the movie ends. And Jerry (laughs) stood up and said, well, Dick. And he was definitely a Richard, not a Dick. He said, well, Dick, what did you think? And Hefner said, What did I think? He said, Jerry, this is the worst film I've ever seen. And Jerry said, yeah, but what's the rating going to be? He said, Jerry, there are not enough X's in the English language or any other language for this film. There are not enough X's. This is a quadruple million X picture. And Jerry said, Dick. You can't do this to me. You can't do this. You got to find a way. We got to do something. And that's, this is my life up there. Jerry was like Sarah Bernhardt. He was a great actress. And he said, uh, You got to help me out here. I got all my money in this picture. And Hefner, that's when Hefner suggested we consult with Aaron Stern, his predecessor, which cost us 50 grand.
0: There is a story that when Cruising had finally uh, got the R rating that some cinema chains complained that they'd been sent the wrong version, that they still thought the version that they had was an X-rated film. That
1: happened with The Exorcist as well. There were some cities that played it as an X, even though it got an R. Yeah. Boston. And Washington. Washington, where we
0: shot. Played it as an
1: X-rated film.
0: Which is ironic because now if you go to Washington at the bottom of the stairs, there's a huge, great big (laughs) plaque which says, this is the place where Father Karras falls to the bottom of the... Yeah, times change. And apparently when... uh, okay, so let me just mention this because that scene with the father, the voice, again, is being transferred. It's the
1: voice of the father. Yeah. The voice that the character played by Richard Cox uses... Is his father's voice who's speaking now,
0: and so all he does the
1: murders in the voice of his father. Yeah,
0: so all the way through we're seeing it's we're seeing different characters, but a and, a and a unifying voice, which is why people have talked about the deliberate incoherence. Not you know, but but the film is deliberately unsolvable, and you've added to that by you know when the film came out, many people said to you, "Mister Freakin', who did these murders?" And you went, "I don't know."
1: I don't know
0: but you understand
1: 2001 how... is one of the greatest films ever made and it's completely incoherent
0: but it's an it's an interesting thing isn't it to make a film that is deliberately unsolvable
1: well i've seen explanations of the ending by kubrick of 2001 but what i'm seeing on the screen is something extraordinarily visual and compelling But it's not handing you the conclusions, you know, in a paper bag like a McDonald's hamburger.
0: I remember talking to you about the end of Rules of Engagement, and there was a similar thing, was it, that you wanted the film to end in a more open-ended way than it actually does? Well,
1: it ends in a kind of open-ended way, but nothing ends with the obscurity of 2001. And I think it's brilliant, it's wonderful. I don't want films that hand you the answer, hey folks, this is what it's about. Yeah. I believe that making a film is a dialogue between the filmmaker, the critic, and the
0: audience. Yeah. It's a dialogue. And each brings something different to it. We see in this scene the beginning of a sort of, you know, the potential for the violence, violence in, in the Pacino in character. character. This is the
1: roommate of the fellow played by Don Scardino. Yeah. And he's a very fine actor named James Remar. Yeah. And this is the only scene where I let Pacino cut loose and and do a Pacino, so to speak. And, what do you mean by that? Uh, well, as you're about to see, exhibits some potential anger, like right here, and uh,
0: so this actually this sets up what we know. It sets up what what happened at the end of the film, which is that there is an act of violence that then we see it could
1: be attributed to either one of these two people. Yeah. James Remar or Pacino.
0: Now, Billy, when you said that thing about a film being a dialogue between, you know, the audience and the and the director and the critic, um, how do you feel about, you know, people reading Cruising in so many... As you know, there have been people who've said, you know, hateful and homophobic, people who've said forward-looking and, uh, you know, only realistic depiction of that world. We're about to see the...
1: This is where this I, I is, let yeah. Pacino cut loose. And this is what... What people recognize from Scarface, <laughs> but it's not him dominating like a superhero or villain, but you just see his potential for violence.
0: And again, an, a knife comes out,
1: similar to the murder. Similar weapon. to the murder
0: weapon. So, how do you feel about people having all these different? Because I think that you, I love are, it. Yeah,
1: I, I, I welcome that. The films that I can't stand are where they hand you easy answers as though on a questionnaire, you know, for a driver's license, a, a crib sheet. I, I I don't believe in superficially happy endings, and I, I just don't care for them, and I, I want to see a picture... That engages my curiosity and intelligence. And that that's what I've tried to do to varying degrees of success or failure.
0: And why do you think that cruising has stood the test of particularly because you know we should say this for people who don't remember, when it opened, it was it was a scandal. I mean, it was a cause cool celebrity. It was on the it was on the news pages of the newspapers rather than the review pages. It did that thing of crossing over into becoming a news story, So did
1: The Exorcist. Yeah. And did The French Connection. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think one of the reasons is because there are no easy answers but a lot of questions. There's a lot of questions about this. Is this fellow Stuart Richards, uh, who is the young college student that Pacino is shadowing, is he the only killer, or is he one of many killers?
0: That's a question of the film. Well, we do know that the, that a murder occurs after the the, the the climax of this, so so we know that there is at least something else is going on.
1: There were multiple murders, yeah. as I said.
0: And when you read all the stuff all the reviews all the you know all the, the the news articles i mean arthur bell who you cited as being one of the sources of inspiration Absolutely. for the thing but was also quite vitriolic about uh, you know about you making the film
1: his main complaint was that i was straight not gay and that i didn't pay him for his
0: articles
1: i didn't use anything from his articles but they did They were an inspiration for this film.
0: Yes, and you've you've said that consistently. You've always given him credit for that being being the case. And he
1: was a fine writer, a very fine journalist.
0: Now, we're coming towards the, the sort of... Well, one of the climaxes of the film now. And at this point, the two characters are... They're almost indistinguishable in terms of the way they're dressed, Mm -hmm. everything, the way they look, everything about them. It's that, you know, it's that good and evil, the thing that you were talking about before. It's the two sides within the same character cop, criminal, good, evil. Mm -hmm. So, this is what we're seeing in this sequence. And I know I said this thing that you chided me for. I said that the. (laughs) <laughs> the, the, the lampposts and the illumination of the lampposts reminded me of Father Marion in The Exorcist, and you said it's not a reference to the... I know it's not a... I know those you are the lampposts that really? were there. I know, but you have to understand that if you live in the UK, those lampposts seem very exotic because you, you don't see them everywhere else. And but there's something about the lighting. There's something about the... Because, of course, the great thing in The Exorcist is the character of Father Marion is dark, and the house where the evil is happening is brightly lit and that's the you know I, I know it's well the house is based on a
1: green painting yeah which is it's similar to but not identical
0: to yeah but you like that dark light just Well i yeah i mean
1: this seemed to be to be a very interesting location for a final confrontation it's central park the upper west side of central park at night and it's obviously very late because these two characters are alone, yeah
0: and but in a very public space,
1: in a very public space, and this moment is setting up obviously a final confrontation,
0: but when the final confrontation comes, it happens so fast it's almost as if, and this is what I think that it's almost as if you're saying but the, but this isn't the point there's the whole there's the hips or lips conversation, and go for it." And then suddenly it's over. And it's almost like, okay, because that's actually not the solution. It's a solution, oh, but it's not Also, the... it's not meant to be a classic
1: movie duel, you know. Because
0: uh, you've got these two guys both wearing leather. I mean, you could set it up as a fight and a chase and a...
1: Yeah, well, it it could be as iconic as the confrontation that ends Shane, which is a great scene between Alan Ladd and Jack Palance but what I wanted out of this scene was the con- the confrontation uh, but not any kind of movie theatrics yeah. for the ending just what happens is Pacino kills this guy he kills him and Well, he wounds him. He wounds him, yeah. He wounds him, and there is the question of could he have gone further, but he doesn't. He could have killed him. I played with that as a possibility, that he might have killed this guy and gotten away with it. Then we would have known even less Mm -hmm. about who this guy
0: was. Did Pacino discuss with you... The in inverted commas meaning of the multiple perspective. Did He want to know from you. Who do you think did it? Because I, as I said, did you say to, did you say to Pacino? I don't know. Did you tell him? Yes, this? of course. And how did he react to that? Because I know he was uncomfortable doing some of the film. I know. So he f- what? Well, no, it's uh, it's an interesting thing that you worked closely with Pacino all the way through this film, and yet you, he found it a difficult. Because for ages he wouldn't talk about it.
1: Well, that's a good thing because he's not very eloquent. And I'm glad he hasn't talked about it, and I hope he maintains that posture. Have you ever heard Pacino?
0: I did an on-stage yeah. with Pacino in which I mentioned cruising, and he said, "He said, oh, that's an interesting film." I don't do but that was as far as that's cool. that was as far that's as That's all goes.
1: you want. <laughs> you, you don't want to explore that or go further.
0: Uh, Is there part of you that thinks that you wish that it had been Richard Gere?
1: Yes, of course. Because of the
0: ambiguity. Okay. So you are Less clear about on that. Less on the nose. Right, okay. Less on the nose.
1: Although I think that Pacino's performance works now. Yeah. I didn't at the time, but I can see that there are aspects of it now that do work, mm-hmm. which I didn't realize when we were shooting. I so, thought I had made a mistake.
0: So now the, the, the it's going to happen... The, the final conversation is going to happen. And it happens, as you said, it's really fast. In and an instant. And it, yeah. That's the way these things did occur. You know,
1: now, the cop's role is to get this guy to pull a knife, mm-hmm. but not to get himself stabbed. So he doesn't let the guy stab him. He stabs the guy.
0: But the guy pulled the knife first. Yeah. But you can it, see that, but as it's happening, they're kind of they're mirroring each other. They're, they're it, it, It's again, it's that idea that they're two sides of the same, right? The same character, right?
1: Now the Pacino character has a chance to slaughter this guy here, but he doesn't. But you did contemplate
0: him doing yeah. that,
1: as you see in this scene. The guy is alive yeah. and in a hospital room, and I used the dialogue that Paul Bateson no, gave that. me, where. In this scene, the Paul Sorvino character says, if you confess to eight murders, we'll reduce your sentence, as was said to Paul Bateson. Yeah. And uh, you'll do maybe 25 years. And I remember asking Bateson, what are you going to do? And he said, I don't know. I'm thinking about it. Well, he's been out for quite some time now. So I think he did about 25 years for confessing to eight or so murders and he's out in upstate New York.
0: So that thing about basically cl- just getting the case cleared up because we need it to be cleared up rather than we need it to be solved. Eight cuppy murders solved.
1: And this guy takes the blame for all of them.
0: So now You're in another film, this would be the end. But it's, you know, yeah. things happen, and this would be... And now This we... is a nice,
1: pleasant aftermath to the case. The Pacino character has not let his boss down. He's, in fact, succeeded... They've broken the case. And this would be the normal ending to a film.
0: And he's been told that he's going to be a detective. He's this going is to the... get
1: a gold shield and be a detective, which was what he was promised.
0: And he's then going to go back and see his girlfriend from whom he's been estranged and he's, everything's going to be fine. Correct. But being you,
1: <laughs> that's not what happened. It's just a prologue to uh, a kind of epilogue.
0: And you always knew that the film was going to end open-endedly you always knew that it was going to have this kind of sting in its tail so did Pacino
1: I mean he did it when he is shaving and I asked him to stop and look directly into the camera yeah you know what do you think that means that means he's looking right into the eyes of the audience and saying who are you you now know The complexity of who I am, but who are you? You're a complex... We're all such complex people, Mark, and this movie is in part about the complexity of life. So in this final sequence, in this uh, penultimate sequence here, there's been another murder.
0: Now, I read that the the, the, when we find the the body which we're about to see that the shape that the body is in was inspired by the front cover of David Bowie's album Lodger is that yeah. that's mm-hmm. correct mm-hmm. so how how did that you were a Bowie fan or how did that well it also
1: was an interesting position to find a dead body in
0: yeah. it was spinell very back striking again? yeah
1: joe spinell who is a bent cop yeah. in the picture uh, who was singled out by one of the drag queens as a guy who yeah. harassed them in this scene, among other things, Sorvino finds out that, yes, this is the name that the drag queen gave him. Yeah, De Simone. yeah, sixth precinct. And then Di Simone tells him that the neighbor who lived down the hall was the pseudonym that Pacino. the Pacino character used.
0: And Spinell, obviously, had a long acting career, round about the same time as this, he was in Maniac. And then sometime later, he turns up in Bill Blatty's film, The Ninth Configuration, as a character called Spinell.
1: He did uh, some very interesting work in The Godfather as well. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. He was one of the hitmen. Joe was a fun guy and a crazy guy.
0: So the Silvino character knows now he knows who that is because he's making the connection and he also we can see from everything about this thing that you said he's seen the worst things the thing that he's seeing it's not the body it's that he's he thinks he brought this about yeah so he's he
1: realizes in this shot that he's helped to contribute to the death of this man
0: yeah And that is an echo of a scene which we, which we. You asked me not to do this, but who's that?
1: That's another character in a leather jacket, going into the mine shaft. Cruising.
0: And now what looks like a sunny coda, and again you've done this thing of playing with the light and dark because this is you know now the white apartment, the white dress, everything, but in fact the sting in the tail is as you said that pacino may or i think is the killer in this scene. only
1: may there's only no okay, sense that he in fact is a killer so what did you, a suggestion. so
0: what did you tell him when you were directing this scene what did you tell him you said you're shaving and you... only
1: i always only speak in metaphor okay, let me just get this you're okay. you're happy to be home you're happy it's all over And you're shaving. And then at a certain point, I want you to look in the mirror directly at the camera. That's all.
0: Okay. You didn't say, because that means... No,
1: I didn't. Because that means what? I don't know what the hell it means. But it's for the audience to figure out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes actors don't like that. Now, the music that's playing over this scene is... The Luigi Boccherini String Quartet, number one, mm-hmm. which Pacino brought to me. It was a, oh, a wow. favorite piece of music of his. And I had it playing over this final scene, and his girlfriend picks up the leather hat and the leather jacket and tries it on for one reason was that that became a look for women, too. Mm-hmm. The Joan Jet look. Uh, this was the Joan Jett my take on the Joan Jet look yeah. and the transference
0: and this is the shot
1: this is the shot where Pacino looks at his own face wondering who am I and then who are you and then we go back
0: to where to we the opened. west
1: river and another tugboat is coming along Similar to the one where the first severed arm was found floating in the river, and it all starts all over again.
0: Looking at the film again now, and I, you know, I, 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 incidentally, I, I know you said that you don't like to uh, to explain things, but I think you've done a very good job of talking your way through the film, giving just enough away. How do you feel about it now?
1: I think it has uh, some very interesting sequences I understand that it's um, disturbing intentionally so mm-hmm. and I don't think that it's aged too much Yeah, I think there is although it's hard to see a scene like this playing out anywhere, although I'm sure it still exists. Uh, It is reflective of the time and what was going on in that world just now, just prior to naming the AIDS epidemic, which had no name when we made this, and all the Most of the people who worked on the crew, many of them were gay, and they died.
0: And that's in Ricky Bravo, who was the camera operator. Ricky we Bravo referring, is referring the camera prefer.
1: operator on French Connection, Exorcist.
0: And Randy and Sonny is technical advisors, and of course we saw them in the... You know. In, These were the, the three itself. guys
1: who mixed The Exorcist, yeah. the sound recording.
0: So you do... You do work again and again with you like you have you like a team around you, don't well, you? Well a lot people?
1: of them have passed away. Yeah. A lot of the names on this list have passed away.
0: But you feel that the film is still cause I you're very critical of your own work, but the film is as you want it now. Yes. It is what it is. And
1: uh I did a new color timed version of is, it. Yeah. Which is uh as close to the way it should always have looked, which was never possible with 35 millimeter. Right. It's only possible with digital technology. Which
0: you've embraced, haven't you?
1: Oh, I love it because you can go into every single frame. There has no dirt. There's no scratches. It hasn't faded. You know, it's true to the color with which we
0: shot it. And do you, do you look back on it as, do you remember the craziness? Do you remember the... No. You just remember the film?
1: I don't think of that. I, I remember some of the things that went on around it. But believe me, when I first saw it after many years to get ready to do a new color transfer, yeah. I was uh, surprised by a lot of it. And I didn't realize we had gone that far toward ambiguity.
0: Yeah. Billy, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank
1: you, Mark. Always a pleasure. Always. Thank you. Really appreciate it.